guests on this program are known for brandishing their wit, vocal prowess, dance skills, writing talent, visual flair, and so much more. Today's guest has many of these talents, but he deploys them using tools of the trade not previously explored in this forum. I speak of fist, sword, knife, <laughs> knee, and a variety of other weapons. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with a recipient of a 2010 Tony Honor for Excellence in the Theatre, Veteran Fight Director B.H. Barry. Whoa, that sounds serious. Well, you know, as soon as you say fight director, it does sound serious, and I'm, I'm sort of curious. I have worked with people who have called themselves fight director, fight choreographer, um, you know, all kinds of variants, including one show where um, the individual wanted to be known as the violence director. He was very specific about that. So I think we need to start for those who don't really understand and just say, what is a fight director? What is the purview of what you do? Oh, well, I think you have to start at the very beginning because uh, it was really like sort of osmosis. I, I came to fight directing. I didn't really set out to be a fight director. Uh, I set out to be an actor and, I was, and a director and fight directing snuck in. Well, I want to get to that, but just what but, is fight direction? Well, I'll get to that because okay. I have to explain the, the, the kind of the, the progression because to begin with, all there was was a fight choreographer mm -hmm. or someone who did stunts or someone who was a fencing teacher and they did the fights for Shakespeare. In fact, if you go back far enough to the Victorian period, they just had set routines that they did. So, I mean, there wasn't a person like me. When I came on the scene, it was like, uh, the time when acting was changing from being declamatory to being more realistic. So fights had to kind of follow in the same vein. And I happened to be an actor and a director, and I had, happened to understand what it would be to put a punch in a play in character, which would further the story. So I started not only to do punches and kicks and all that kind of stuff, but I started to actually direct the scenes. Now, there were about three or four of us in England that were working. The one that I was working at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Bill Hobbs was working at the National Theatre. And we were doing BBC television. He was doing commercial television. And we were doing this stuff. And we were called fight choreographers, fight arrangers. And we got together and we, we decided that really what we were were fight directors. So we formed a society of British fight directors. The and four we, of you. The <laughs> four of us. But well, I mean, there were other people got involved as well. But putting the word director up meant that we, we actually took the scene and we directed the scene with the fight in it. So although the fight was there in its form, with swords or with fists or what other parts of the body you're going to use, what it did essentially was it helped the play to move forward in terms of the story and for the character in terms of the character. Uh, so the word fight director encompasses that. I think there are a lot of people around who do what, what I call fight plumbing. You know, can we throw a punch here? Can you do a slap there? It's like doing a magic trick. Um, they, they do a series of magic tricks. But the fight director is a person who really takes the scene and creates that moment in the, in the play which enhances the whole um, uh, evening. Well, since you've started it this way, let's let's talk about your bio, and then we'll come back to the to the technique. You were born in England, Correct. grew up in a small town called Staines. Mm -hmm. Where is Staines in the geography of England? About twenty miles southwest of London, okay. heading towards Windsor Castle. Now, you left school at age fifteen Correct. to go to work, but mm -hmm. that work was not theater. So, how did you end up starting a theater career? What? No, this is going to give my age away, but what the heck? You know, I've reached a point where I'm more experienced than aged. Um, and I, uh, in, there was a period in England when they stopped the, uh, the draft, the National Service. Um, because we were not too wealthy, uh, I had to take my second choice, which was working as a chemical engineer in a laboratory. So your first choice would have been to Acting. go into the military? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I couldn't, we couldn't afford it. It was too risky. Mm -hmm. So I had to go out and earn some money for the, for the household. It was just my mother, myself, and my grandfather. And so I really had to go to work. Uh, and then along came uh, the draft. Well, what happened was the draft got cancelled uh, in 19... 58 and I didn't have to go 
Mm-hmm. So two years, I was given two years back of my life. So I thought, you know what? With two years, I'm going to experiment with those two years. It would have been wasted anyway by going into the national service. So I'll do acting for two years. If I don't make it, then I'll get out. I mean, you know, the, the dreams of a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I left the uh, laboratory and I went to work at a lumberyard. And I managed a lumberyard for a year, cutting timber and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, very young uh, lumberyard manager. I worked in the evenings at a, a, a pub. And on one night a week, I went to drama school. I, I found a drama school that I could go to to take private classes. Uh, and that developed over the course of like two or three years into me actually going to a drama school, which was Corona Academy, which is a small stage school uh, set in, uh, um, in Ravenscourt Park just outside of London. Hmm. And the principal there thought I had enough talent to go there and gave me a kind of scholarship. Uh, and um, so I was able to go full time, but I worked every night in a bar. I worked at weekends um, at the, um, the National Trust for Runnymede, uh, the King, where King John signed the Magna Carta. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I did all sorts of jobs, cleaning floors, uh, and, and getting a day off was like a vacation. It was, I didn't get a day off. I just worked to work to work. But I always had a talent for teaching. And the, uh, uh, the, the principal, um, Rona Knight, uh, said, would you like to teach some classes? You seem to understand mime and you seem to understand. Could you teach dialect? Could you teach acting? Could You're you still d- going to the school? I'm going to the school to and now I, I have some of the skills, so I'm like a, a trainee teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm uh, working away there doing this stuff and I'm getting, I know, three pounds an hour for teaching two classes, taking kids through their monologues and, and teaching a mime class. And this, this developed into um, me finally uh, kind of learning stage combat let's let me stop you for a moment because Please do. i'm running on here well, <laughs> i, I want to ask you went presumably to learn to be an actor correct correct you're taking these classes assuming you're taking acting classes yes. as you say things like mime etc cetera, etc cetera. did you feel you were any good first of all well, yeah, um, I did. I mean, I, th- I think it would be crazy to say I didn't. But I also, uh, I've always been a realist. I've always been able to write my own bad review. Uh, and I realized that although I was a good actor, uh, and I looked reasonably good, that I didn't compare with people like Albert Finney or Tom Courtney, David Hemmings. The competition at that time was pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And, and although I was getting odd parts uh, um, on television and in films, the, the, I was not. It was, it was not really going to happen. But I still, you know, hope springs eternal. Uh, and um, I think that to answer that question absolutely accurately, I would say I still think I'm a pretty good actor. Uh, it's just that I've, I've not practiced hmm. and, and I got completely sidetracked. So – the, you said you were about to say that you know you you started the fight teaching, and was that conscious to say this is something I'm interested in, or was just the school sort of steered you there? No, actually, it was quite remarkable. I mean, happenstance works in a wonderful way. Uh, I was lucky enough to have two really good teachers. One was Paddy Crane, and Paddy Crane, um, uh, oh God, the most extraordinary man. Uh, he was Errol Flynn's double, uh, and he worked in Canada, and he was very, very wonderfully romantic. I mean, he, he uh, 70 years old, we'd go out to a, uh, to a restaurant, and he, he would chat up the waitress. I mean, they'd just tremble in their knees. This guy was like the fool. If Errol Flynn had continued living to 70, this would have been Paddy Crane. Uh, great, wonderful man. And so he was my teacher, uh, um, fencing. And then I had uh, another great teacher in Barry Jackson. And Barry Jackson, who became or was called as a stunt coordinator, Jack Barry. And he and I struck it off and, and, and had a great time um, working together. And he taught Aikido at the BBC, which was a Japanese martial art. And I went to his classes, which were been at Corona. And we had, a, you know, we had a, a whole course. And it was very haphazard. You know, come in and learn a punch or like, come in and learn a slap or something. And then Barry got to a point where he, he said, no, I'm an actor and I really don't want to do this anymore. So he went cold turkey. And he said, I'm teaching at Central School and at Lambda. Would you like to take over my classes? So there is the beginnings of what I was setting out to do. Hmm. So he set me up and I started to teach at Lambda. Uh, John Lithgow was one of my first students, would you believe? Hmm. And Ed Herman, 
I mean, the list is endless. Carrie Fisher. Um, uh, the, um, the, there were mass of them that came through Central School and Lambda. And through Central School and Lambda, I then got to be at Ratha, the Royal Academy. And then I taught at Guildhall, at the Guildhall um, School of Music and Drama. And so it went on. And So with the teaching at this point, this is before you've started the society yes. of stage well, directors. No, it's all, all in, in, in it's the all, that, yeah. it, It's all together. I mean, I'm spanning about five years there. So were you developing the idea of something more than what you referred to as tricks? Yes, absolutely. You know, at that time you have Pinter coming along, Joe Orton, and these people, and I get involved. In a, and it, with Pinter, I did the birthday party uh, when it first came out. And, uh, and, and so I, I, w- I was pushed into a world which was, you could, you just, I knew you couldn't just do slaps and punches. I knew that. Because the actors would look at me and go, well, that's, that's just a trick. It doesn't feel real. And because we were very enamored with the American reality in, in England at that time. We all wanted to be, you know, contemplating our neighbors and, and, and feeling an emotion and stuff. So it, it, uh, the, I was forced into choosing action that would work for those actors. So, and actors were different sizes, and I, I'd often say, well, you can't teach an old lady to do a karate chop, because that was very popular at the time. It just looked ridiculous. So you had to do something that an old lady would do. So rather than just doing all the, the techniques, I started to come up with these, how do you, uh, as an actor, I'll give you an example. If you were to, to slap somebody, uh, you could obviously slap them, and you know, we'd just do the thing, and it would look effective, and people would go, ooh, that's tremendous. But you, Howard, depending upon your, what you're feeling, the slap would either be small, large, very aggressive, weak, depending upon what you felt. So the, the choreography would blend into your acting motivation. So well, I would choose that blow. And the first step, as you're talking about, is what's right for the character. Correct. But I would assume, at the same time, you're balancing it with the ability to repeat the same action night Absolutely. after night and the safety in it. Mm-hmm. So... So how do you how do you balance the two, both the 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 potentially violence of the act and the safety of the act at the same time? It was a, a lot easier in the sixties and seventies when there was a leftover from the declamatory form of acting, where people knew it was acting when you did a fight, and it didn't have to be real. Um, uh, as time's got time has gone on, um, I actually did a fight. John Simon criticised it quite rightly. It was it it, it was really quite spectacular. It was a, a fight with Ethan Hawke, and it was really good, but it looked too real. We, we were scared for the actors, hmm. because both the actors wanted, not Ethan, but the other actor uh, wanted to make it, he said, I don't like fight, you know, f- fight choreography, looks like dance, and he said, I want it to be real. So he really put himself out there, and it was so, looked so dangerous that the audience backed away from it. Uh, but normally, when an actor understands uh, that it's only an acted moment, which is what I enforce all the time. You, know, you, you really have to switch gears when it comes to this particular um, type of action. Um, it, it is perfectly safe. You, you organize it in such a way that it's fakes for the audience and everything's safe there, but it can still fulfill its reality. So it's a sort of separate reality, I suppose. Huh. So were you, were you honing this? Were you, at the same time you were teaching students, were you practicing on your students? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I always think of my classes being like my laboratory. I've been teaching at Circle in the Square for over 30-odd years now. So I've been teaching for 50 years. Uh, and that without my students, I would not be the person I am. The students show me. I see what they do. I think, oh, that's good. I'll use that in the future. I mean, there's a lot of experimentation. And I'm still learning. I, it, something else happened the other day that I came up and I went, oh, I thought of doing that. That's very really good. And... Um, so, but it's not about tricks. It's not about, not really about magic. It's it, my best review is no review. My best review is that the, the play was violent, not B. H. Barry did violent action on the play. Um, I like to blend. I like to make sure there's uh, an easiness to uh, the way in which action takes place. Well, you were very clear about saying that instead of being a fight arranger or a fight choreographer. It's fight director, and then mm-hmm. that denotes something very different. But ultimately, you are working in collaboration, as a choreographer might, with a director. Correct. And indeed, somewhere in the scene, it may shift from what the director has staged to when you've taken over. 
What's the kind of conversation you have? You've already talked about the, the motivations of an actor. What are the co- first conversations you have with a director about approaching the portions of a play that you're going to stage? The first question I, I really uh, ask, I, you know, I ask you, if it's a Shakespeare play, are we doing it in period? Because that's going to re- affect everything else that we do. The major question that I'll ask is, I'll say to him, and and this is a test question on the phone, when I come to see you, I want you to tell me what would be missing if the fight wasn't in the play. What what would be missing? What would not be there? By finding out what he thinks wouldn't be there, I now know what to do. Uh, Let me give you an example. Um, uh, Let's do the Paris-Romeo fight. Uh, at the, uh, uh, in, in Romeo and Juliet. And I said to him, you know, what would we, and he would say, well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, Romeo's trying to get into the tomb and Paris is stopping him. So I suppose what would be missing would be that if he didn't do the fight, Romeo would just go into the tomb uh, and uh, he would kill himself. But there would be, uh, there'd be no uh, cause or, uh, for, for Romeo to eventually die. If he kills somebody before he goes in, and then gradually, as I ask those questions, the director will start to realize that the fight itself has a meaning, that Shakespeare didn't put it in there just as a, a fight and a piece of spectacular stuff. He put it in there because he wanted us, the audience, to want Romeo to lose. Because if Romeo loses, then he will be, in the, he will be captured, Juliet will wake up, and there'll be a chance for them. By having Romeo kill Paris, there's no way back. He's now killed the prince's kinsman. So by finding out what's missing, I now know what to choreograph. So the fight itself now becomes about Romeo not ruthlessly killing Paris, but Romeo killing Paris either by accident or by he has no choice. Uh, he, he, uh, there's something that lets Romeo off at that moment. Uh, it could be that, that he goes to the gate and Paris grabs him from behind, he just pushes the sword backwards and, and, and Paris runs on it. And then, having done that, my next question would be with the actors themselves. Do I have a, um, a I'll say to the, the Romeo, um, what would be missing from your character if you didn't get to do the fight? If I said, no, we're going to cut that. Well, obviously, then we, we talk about the fact that he wouldn't be guilty of murder. So I start to hone in on the idea based on if you take something away. Because a playwright, when he writes a scene, he puts it in there for a reason. If you take the scene away, you'll find out what the reason was. Hmm. When an actor is cast, certainly a director is looking for what they can do. If it happens to be a musical or involve musical skills, we want to find out, you know, how do they sing? They're selected on the basis of that or their dance skills. Choreographer will be involved. A musical director will be involved. Are you involved in casting, or are you some usually handed a group of actors and told figure yeah, out how to yeah, make that, them that fight? That would be right. <laughs> so, so how much of what you do is is doing a class every time you do and do a play, and how much of it is your ability to go in and just do your creative work? Well, it, I, I, one would hope at the moment. Uh, the way to explain it, I suppose, is that 90% of the time uh, I have to retrain people to do this particular thing, um, uh, the, the fight. They think of it as, uh, they would say to me, oh, yeah, well, I did rapier and dagger. Kiss or death for me. It is that if somebody th- thinks that they know how to do something, they've not left their character open to what could happen. Um, I like the person who has done nothing. Hmm. If you've never done a fight in your entire life, it will, I would be the happiest person on the planet because then I can work with the actor. I can create the illusion. Learning to fight is, is the easiest thing in the world. I can teach anybody to do a slap or a punch or a kick, provided they've got two arms and two legs, you know, and, and uh, whether a modicum of, of coordination. But if you've got a Tibbet that doesn't fight, for instance, I mean, let's go to the real extreme. Um, you can still make the fight work. In fact, uh, a long time, long time ago, uh, I did a, a fight for the Royal Shakespeare Company with David Suchet uh, and uh, Timothy Dalton. And we played the fact that Tim- uh, David Suchet, who played Tybalt, couldn't fight. A Tybalt that couldn't fight. Now, the reason we chose it was because David was a student of mine and he was a great fighter. 
And, and to be a great clown, you've really got to be a, you know, a, a really good actor. And so uh, and we chose to do this, and we put David in a leather suit, you know, like the karate guys that run around pret- pretending to do karate and not <laughs> knowing a thing about it. And, and, so, and he had a henchman that carried 12 swords around with him the whole time. And we had, so David now played a character who couldn't fight. Um, so I could use that motif uh, or that, that uh, means for any actor. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. Fencing is not the important part. It's the intention. It's the story that you tell. It, it's the fact that Mc- uh, I mean, you could argue that, uh, um, that, that Tybalt knows that Romeo is dating Juliet and therefore won't fight him. And, and Mercutio knows that... Ro- I mean, you can make up a lot of backstory, but what's, what's interesting at that moment is the relationship between the actors. And it happens to be physical. That's why I take it over. And I could cut it to one or two blows. I can make it 20 blows. I can make it a spectacular fight. But the important part is to further the story. And therefore, whoever I get, especially if they know nothing, is really, really good because I can come up with some great ideas. It's inevitable in your line of work that there are certain plays that call out for a fight director. Mm -hmm. You've been speaking about Romeo and Juliet. I dare say, looking at your resume, you've probably been involved in more Hamlets than most directors or most actors have ever worked on the same play over Mm -hmm. and over again, certainly those plays. How do you approach each production fresh because certainly the text hasn't changed and certainly you you very clearly explicated motivation for why a character might fight in a certain way how much is how much is new every time? Well, I'm blessed with a very short memory. <laughs> <laughs> that works. I think so it may not yeah, be no, new, no, but it doesn't bother me. It may not, you. but it doesn't bother me. No, no. I, it's, um, uh, I often look at something and somebody says, oh, did you do that? Oh, didn't you use that move? And I, I have no idea. <laughs> it, because, I mean, the, the, but to, to answer your, your question correctly is that Shakespeare is about the human condition. It's about, it's about jealousy or it's about... Um, love, it's about uh, pride, it it has its basis in the human condition and everybody expresses the human condition in a different way, there are a million different ways to play Tybalt, therefore there are a million different actions that I can give Tybalt to play there's no definite Tybalt moment or Uh definite Tybalt thing Um, the the powers of invention I I, I always, everybody quote me on this, the bigger the problem the better the answer Hmm. Uh, I love big problems. I, I, the fact that one actor is shorter or taller than the other, uh, one that maybe is bigger than the other actor, maybe one actor can't move as well, maybe uh, his portrayal of, of Tybalt, uh, it, uh, it could, be, could be anything, absolutely anything. What I, I think I have the ability to do is to look at all the problems in front of me and bring them into order, to create an order in them. And from that order, to create some kind of story that, that will, will propel the audience into the next part of the play. So... Um, you know, I have sequences. Uh, um, Kevin Klein did a Hamlet twice. The first one with David Hyde Pierce, which was a really involved fight because uh, Livio Chule was directing and, and uh, um, uh, Kevin was free to do this. When he came to direct the play, he had absolutely no time to do the fight. We were putting the fight together. He was having to do the part, direct the play, uh, and, you know, and so forth. So I cut the fight down to five moves. And there were just five basic moves, which were repeated in different forms. Hmm. Uh, so I, I found a way. Out. That was the problem. Then I made him play, like, uh, made the, uh, the Laertes recognize those five moves. So, oh, you're doing the same moves again. So you, you can use um, repetition. You can use, well, you could use anything that's in front of you. I mean, I think any good director does that. You know, he, he looks at what's possible. And from the possible, he creates that world, uh, uh, uses all the colors. It's like you've got all the colors on your, on your palette. Just use them. See how you can use them in different forms. And why the fights always look different is because of that. It's interesting that you say, you know, you love when people come in not saying they've had a lot of experience because that would seem to go against the idea of someone who's taught for 30-some-odd years. Um, do you, in fact, get excited when you're suddenly presented with some of your former students who know exactly what to do, and then you can go somewhere else? Absolutely. 
I'm doing. It seems like I'm giving my resume, but I am giving you my resume. So anyway, I'm, I'm doing a uh, fanchula at the Met uh, this summer. Uh, the girl of the Golden West. And uh, I hire a lot of my students to be in the fights because what they know, and it's not about the punches and the kicks and things, they know how to listen to me. They know what my modus operandi is. They know where I will take them and what they have to pay attention to. My classes are not just about throwing punches and doing kicks. It's how you act, how you use action to create a situation. That they learn that. That's what they learn. They learn the punch. You know, how to do the punch, which is you know, easy. You swing the fist. You miss the chin. The head re- reacts exactly at the same speed that the punch is coming in. You clap your hands to make the noise. And then the nuance of that. Then we play with how you do different forms of that. So they're constantly being taught how to use the, the uh, combat to illustrate uh, um, uh, a mood, uh, um, uh, whatever um, temperament they're feeling at that mm. time. Now, let's come back because I've sort of skipped over so much. You you were teaching. You form with three other men. No, more, there's more than three. You got, okay. There's a bigger number. Okay. There's so, okay. a bigger number. Sorry. <laughs> but you form, you form the Society of Fight Directors mm-hmm. in England. Correct. How did you come to the U.S., first of all? In 1971, Jack Clay, uh, who was running uh, SMU, Southern Methodist University down in Texas, read that I was teaching at LAM, uh, rather, and invited me to a movement uh, seminar, a movement course in Dallas. So the first time I came to America was Dallas. Uh, it was almost also the first time I flew in a plane. Uh, I, I, you know, I was just, it was the first time I'd ever been in temperatures of that enormous number. Um, and also with a group of people that didn't listen to me, only my accent, where people, I, I ask somebody directions to something, and they say, oh, that's what did you say? They never listen to what I, <laughs> my content, only the, the way I say it. So I was reciting Mary Had a Little lamb, lamb on the Sidewalk. So that was 1971, and I went, uh, and I met a ho- whole lot of people there. And I loved America. I loved SMU, and I loved the, the, the whole American way of thinking. Uh, in England, uh, by that time I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and had done a lot of stuff. But I was getting to a point where... It was getting tiresome. I would come up with an idea and people would go, oh, no, oh, no, no, we don't do that. No, no. So it, it, that was an intake of breath. When I came to America, people went, yeah, how do you want to do that? Which was an outtake of breath. And for a person like myself, I need the outtake of breath. I need the support. You know, I'm, I'm reasonably insecure uh, and I need people to kind of push me forward to the next level. And America did that. The students were enthusiastic, wonderful, outgoing. They never questioned. They always did everything I, wa- you know, I wanted to do with a great deal of enthusiasm. And I thought, I've got to come back. I've got to come back to America. So that was 1971. Now we have to cut to Tina Packer uh, and uh, Kristen Linklater and John Broom. And we form a company in England called Shakespeare and Company. And uh, this is in 1975. And uh, uh, we decide that we need to come to – we're training actors from Lambda who are on the Fulbright Scholar ship there and we get a whole bunch of actors together and we, d- we start to do plays Shakespeare's plays we went up to Stratford um, John Barton came and helped us and we we, we really formed we, we did um, Taming of the Shrew and we brought it to Waterford in Connecticut um, to that playwrights um, to the O'Neill Conference the O'Neill Conference, Conference right yeah. which you, you mentioned uh, and um, and th- there I met Augusta Augusta ran Carnegie Mellon he was the chairman uh, uh, and we got a little bit inebriated one evening, the two of us. A few little jars there were imbibed. And we got talking about what I did and what he did. And he said, what do you do? And I said, uh, I teach uh, actors how to fight. And he said, well, I got a school. And uh, I said, well, won't you invite me to come along? And he said, I will. And I said, great. Within two weeks, he'd invited me to Carnegie Mellon. And that's where I went to, uh, to teach. What was the state of of fight education and fight direction in the U.S., to your knowledge, at the point at which Earl Gister asked you to come teach? Uh, to my knowledge. Um, there were one or two people who were... Uh, see, I, I, I'm, I'm always careful about saying I'm the, the originator because, you know, I, I think I am, but I'm not that conceited enough to say that I am O-sensei, the beginning person, Um, because I'm sure I didn't know about uh, a lot of other people teaching. But to my knowledge, nobody was teaching what I teach, Hmm. which would be a better answer, I think. Because certainly there had been 
classical productions in America for uh-huh. many decades, if if not a couple of hundred years. M- maybe I should define that a bit more yeah. because um, uh, Paddy Crane was teaching, but he was teaching a, a form of fencing which is still taught now, which is uh, based on saber parries. Mm-hmm. What I suppose I'm, I'm talking about is the unarmed combat and my combat classes were not based on any real technique. They were more based on actors and action. And so therefore, learning how to throw a punch or do a slap was a, a small part of what I taught. Well, and we should say that even someone who, who is teaching fencing for the stage it's not the same as learning how to fence, I no. assume. It's, well, no. it's learning how to mimic, but knowing exactly what, again, the script, the choreography would be. Strangely enough, I, I, there's a whole mystique around um, fencing and whatever. I, I, I always think I can teach somebody to fence in about 10 minutes. I mean, I could teach you a sequence in 10 minutes. Um, and, and you could do this at home, amongst yourselves. How about this? Stand opposite a person. And with your finger pointed, point at their right shoulder. Now point at their right leg. Now have them point back at your right shoulder. And then have you point back at their right leg. Now just point using your finger, aiming at those targets. So you go backwards and forth. I go forward, I go down, you come back at my shoulder, and then I go back at your leg. The sequence of events are what's important. Now, I could put a broomstick in your hand. I could put a loofer in your hand. I could put anything I wanted to in your hand, and you could still fulfill that objective. If I put a sword in your hand, then it takes on a different feeling because you're actually trying to poke the other guy in the shoulder. And when he defends himself, which he would probably try to do, then you try to go for where he isn't which will be at his leg. Then he sees a, a chance of an opportunity to go over your shoulder, and so on. So a fight develops out of a series of objectives, rather like acting does. Hmm. And I think of my classes in many ways like they're, they're physical acting classes. They enable the actor to follow. The, the same things apply. What do you want? What do you do about what you want? And what are the circumstances surrounding that? Those are the three things that remain constant in any fight. Hmm. Uh, so... I, I sort of took you off. So Earl Gister brings you to Carnegie Mellon. Yep. You begin to teach there. At what point, because you've already mentioned Shakespeare and Company, Shakespeare and Company moved from England to western Massachusetts yes. at a certain point. Yes. So was that where you really were getting your first work doing fight direction for theater in the U.S.? Strange enough, uh, it, it, yes and no. The, fir- the first um, job I got was that I got notice for uh, was um, uh, down at the arena stage. I did a Hamlet with Chris Tabori. God, you know, my short memory may be going, but my long term's <laughs> not too shabby. And um, uh, it's Chris Tabori and... Um, um, it was, uh, anyway, and, and that was the first time that um, Clive Barnes had ever given a fight director a review. Because hmm. in, the, in the review it said, and the fights were great, uh, um, uh, choreographed by B.H. Barry, who is a fight director, whatever that may mean. And, and so, and, and then from that moment... And this from an English critic. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and also, uh, the, the one thing that really pushed me forward was actually, believe it or not, Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus has seen um, uh, a Romeo and Juliet that I choreographed for Rudolf Nureyev, the ballet. And he thought it was, it was pretty good. Uh, even though I do say it myself, it was very good. And uh, uh, he mentioned it to Joe Papp, and I came to Central Park to do Othello. And there's a funny little story at the end of that. I, I did the fights, and Joe came up to me after. He said, very good. Yeah, he's very good. He said, you've got to work for the New York Shakespeare Festival again. He said, well, there are too many deaths at the end of this play. Can you cut one? And so we, we had Amelia die of a heart attack. <laughs> That's what it's I not like you were paid by the death. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Huh. So, so you're doing the teaching. Um, how, how did the work start to come? Because it's inter- it, it seems to have just snowballed. It's almost as if, you know, just suddenly you're all over New York and then you begin the Broadway, you know, work. Were you looking for it or no. was it all? No, no, no. It, it, I mean, I was just happy to teach. Uh, and, and then go back to England and choreograph back there. And it, it just got out of hand. Um, uh, I've never had an agent. Um, I have a lawyer who represents me, Jerry Couture, the wonderful Jerry Couture. Uh, and I never look for work. And in fact, it's probably 
part of my downfall in a way is that because I don't really look for it. Um, uh, I don't seek it out. I, I always, I, I always want to be at a place where people want me, you know, because my job's hard enough. Um, I've run into one or two situations where I've been hired for the wrong reason, I think. Uh, and unless I can do my job properly, uh, it, it's a disaster. It just doesn't work. I need to have people like Mark Lamos, you know, who, who really enjoys what I do, who are willing to give up that scene and not be threatened by me and not to be worried that I'm trying to take over the production, that just trust me to do my job. Des McEnough was very good for a very long time when, we, when I worked with him. We really worked as good collaborators on it. You know, and things happen, things change. And, and, um, uh, but, but I think that, that what happened was that people just enjoyed working with me. And they say, oh, you got to, you know, and it sort of spread, and it, it was good. And I'm really very proud of that, that I didn't really go chasing work to that, that extent. It just kind of happened. And no one was really doing it, in all due respect. Were, you know, I became that name. You know, if you wanted to do um, a fight, you know, get B.H. Barry. The formidable, the redoubtable, the indefatigable, you know. It felt like a... Well, there is a society of fight directors now in the U.S. Mm-hmm. When did that come into being? Did you have something to do with that? No. Um, that's an incredibly long story, and, and it really is it's a political story more uh-huh. than anything. And, and it's – I – there's a difference between societies in England and societies in America. Um, our mandate in England was to improve the standard of stage fighting. We recognized each other as being um, uh, fight directors – here, it became more about putting stuff on your CV, on your resume. Well, it's like being credentialed yeah, over here. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I don't want to badmouth anything. It's just, it's just, it wasn't for me. It just wasn't for me. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people that you know, enjoyed doing it. And uh, there was a time when I noticed that everybody had initials uh, and moustaches and spoke with English accents. You know, and it was, uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I joke about it, but it, it was... Uh, I chose not to. I, w- I was asked to join, and I was told if I didn't join, I probably wouldn't work again. And, and I said, no, thank you. I, I don't think that's going to happen to me. And, and I just opted out. Hmm. And I've always opted out. I've always sort of I'm – g- I'm not good at societies, really. I wasn't even good at the British society. I said, so just – I'm not good at that kind of formalized stuff. I, I love – I love the fact that actors are so sort of like mavericks. I, I love the idea of, uh, of not conform. I don't like conformity. I like acting to be about passion uh, and not about opinion. Um, I, I, that's what I really enjoy. Uh, and um, in terms of plays, uh, the same thing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned working with Nureyev and that that was something you were very proud of. Um, are there one or two productions that you think back on and say – you know, you said earlier you sometimes forget what you do, but are there a couple of productions that you would say really showcased your work in a way you're proud of? I think I think the the, the Nureyev one I, I'm, I'm really pleased with. Um, I, I did Mulan, the uh, the movie, which is not to do with theatre. Uh, Mulan uh, was a Disney cartoon, and is um, so going to talk about this? I, I think it so. Is, unless right, unless it's Disney not is, is committed, but uh, no, I think it's 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 fascinating to hear that that. An animated film would hire a fight director. Well, yes. Um, what they do is a thing called live action reference, which is that uh, sometimes the cartoonists don't know how to draw a perspective thing of how a fight twists and turns or a movement twists and turns in terms of perspective. So, well, I would get stuntmen and we would create the fight or whatever it was, and then we'd film it on a background on a grid or just don't film it, and then the cartoonist could look at it. And see how the figure diminished in size as it moved away. You know what different parts of the body. But anyway, the big story on this one was that I got the script, and I've, I had then a five-year-old daughter. Now, when you have a five-year-old daughter, things change radically, because you know it's a do- it's a little girl. I mean, it's just incredible. And I read the script, and I thought it's another Disney script that says um, my daughter has to turn into a man to win. And, and that's what the script read, basically. Uh, um, do you familiar with the story at all? I've just seen the film. Yeah. And, and I looked at it and I thought, well, no, I, this is – I'm not quite happy with this. So I went up to Los Angeles uh, with, with – I knew I'm – because I can't keep quiet. And uh, 
uh, they said, would you like to do the movie? I said, yeah, no, I'd love to. I mean, I'd never done a, a cartoon. It was a real thrill. And uh, they said, well, you know, what do you think of the script? And I said, well, and I thought, here goes the job. Um, I said, well, you're telling my daughter she has to turn into a man to win. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, that training session, that, you know, that when she fails the training session, uh, um, she sta- in the other, your script, you have a stand at the bottom of that post looking at that arrow she's supposed to achieve, gritting her teeth and climbing up the thing in spite of everything. I said, I, d- I don't think that's what women do. You know, I think they use other skills. They have other strengths. Uh, and then I used an example. I said, well, because I was thinking about it on the plane, how do I... And I said, well, if you put six guys in a room with a grand piano and you say to the six guys, can you get it out of the room? And, and they find a way to do it. You know, one person, small guy gets underneath, the big person pushes it there, and eventually they turn it up and they get it out of the room. Now, get put six women in a room with the same problem. They'll move it to the door, uh, and uh, egos will all be intact. You know, they just move it to the door. And then they'll say, you know, we need some guys. <laughs> <laughs> so then they decide which one of the women will go and ask the guy. Then the woman will go to the door and look in the room at the guys and think, which one should I ask to get the best result? Now, if you think about that, these are skills that women use on a daily basis. Lateral thinking, manipulation, intuition, these are all strengths that guys never have to use on really on a daily basis. We mostly use muscle, bra- I mean, we use our brains, of course, you know, but we're much more analytical, we're much more linear. And so I said in the movie, when she comes to the bottom of that post and looks up at that arrow, she's going to th- think of what was said. She, what was said to her is, if you get that arrow then you will become a warrior. So two things, I thought. She can chop the pole down, would be one thing, and then take the arrow. I mean, they said get the arrow, it's like climbing up it. And the other way was to take off her um, a belt and use it like the Filipinos do to climb up uh, coconut trees and things. That's when it changed. So what else do you think? And then suddenly I became uh, a, a consultant on the movie rather than just being the fight director on the movie. Let me ask you, it poses a question, and it's not specific to Mulan, but when you were originally approached, it was for a story that was set uh, in uh, Japan. China. It was China, I'm sorry. And um, presumably, the style of fighting was different than we've been talking about American Mm -hmm. tradition, English tradition. Was that... A, vo- a fight vocabulary with which you were already versed, or is that something that you then had to say, what would be the style for these people? You mentioned Aikido earlier on. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, uh, um, it's in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> the, you, you can make up. I, I oh, God. Uh, you know, anybody who's listening to this who worked with me on those projects would go, you lied. And, and I sort of did. Um, I, I did a, a, a black version of Macbeth. Uh, and I wanted at the end, I wanted it to be very magical and very ritual. So we had all these black actors um, uh, from, uh, who were fresh uh, immigrants into England because there weren't that many black actors in England. And uh, I wanted them to stand around with buffalo shields and assegais, you know, the spears, and bang the shields when Macbeth and Macduff were fighting uh, with an African war chant. Well, I couldn't find any African war chants. So I came in one day and said, OK, I want you to learn this war chant. And all I did was to take some sounds, take off the consonants, and and I just made up this whole thing, and I had these guys learn this so-called, in quotations, African war chant. Nobody knew, it was very effective, it looked right, it sounded right, so that was okay to do that. I mean, I don't feel that that verisimilitude is very important, is is incredibly important uh, in the theatre. Like, who knows how they did rapier and dagger? I mean, we have catalogues of people showing how to do rapier and dagger. Fabri, Caroli, I mean, the, the list is endless of, of, of fight teachers or, uh, or fencing masters of the period. But I don't think an audience is interested in that. What they're interested in is not whether it was a, 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 a Posado Soto, but rather, is Romeo going to die? I mean, that's what's important. I mean, most of us don't really worry too much about the, the period. Unless you do a movie. Now, a movie is different. A movie you can research, you can be specific, but mostly I think in the theatre is about illusion. And I'm quite willing to, to, to my suspension of disbelief to be nurtured and cozied up to. I don't have a problem with that. If somebody tells me it's the truth, I go, okay, fine. That's, fine. That's not what's important. 
Hmm. Um, uh, uh, so I like um, – well, not fabrication, I suppose, would, would be wrong. But I think theatricality is the right thing to do. I mean, hmm. you know, you've got to make up stuff. I mean, come on, it's theatre. It's fun. It's, it's, it's not important that you come away from it with an opinion. Well, that was really very clever, Sato Sato. I think he really executed that uh, extremely well. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter, I don't think. Hmm. It's good if you could – I mean, what I do is I take in catalogs and pictures so the actors can mimic some of the, 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 the positions. But in fighting, mostly the, 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 you move from an off-balance uh, off position onto a series of on-balance positions. When you're fighting, you move from an on-balance position into a series of off-balance positions, which is slightly different. So you have to be in control when you're doing a fight. Hmm. So if you're if you're um, uh, if you're fighting, you fall off balance and then you stay on balance when you do the movements. Whereas it would be complete opposite, probably when you're fighting. Now I asked you about things you're proudest of, and oh, you oh yeah. you haven't you haven't mentioned theater <laughs> yet. But I'll I'll swing away. What was what was perhaps the most challenging assignment you were ever given oh, in the right. theater? Oh, they're all challenging. I have to tell you that you know there's a thing about. Uh, um, Broadway, which is never become the victim. Um, have you ever heard this? In every production, there is a victim, almost without exception. Broadway is the hardest place on earth to apply one's craft. You have to be confident and assured. You have to move forward with everything, all the headlights on. You can't afford to look over your shoulder. You really can't. Because you're in such a, a high-power situation where if something goes wrong, there are millions of dollars um, uh, at stake. So sometimes when things aren't working, and often when things aren't working, someone will point to what they think is the weakest link. Well, you know, if, it's, uh, if it wasn't for the lights, it would be fine. Or if that costume that she's wearing were in green, everything would be absolutely splendid. You know, there's always a reason why some things aren't working. And you learn after a while to kind of offload a little bit when you're doing a Broadway show, is to try and deflect somewhat. Um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not quite as um, aggressive as I'm making or sound, but, but it exists. And if I get into a situation where I'm asked to do something and I am not certain and I think the director has my back and everybody's behind me and it doesn't go quite the way it should do, that is the most terrifying moment uh, you could ever run into. You know what's going to happen. You just know. Hmm. Because I've seen great things cut out of plays. I've seen plays come apart because of uh, indecision and uh, um, uh, fear. Uh, the best ones, like Michael Blakemore... I will move heaven and earth to work with Michael Blakemore. I love the man. He's a gentleman. You always feel safe and secure on Broadway with Michael. It really is tremendous. But some people, I mean, you have to realize that some people, their, their career is at stake when they're doing it. And so, therefore, it, it can never be their fault. Hmm. It invariably has to be somebody else's fault. Um, I, I know it sounds kind of wounding, but uh, you asked me the question. That's when I feel... My most vulnerable mm -hmm. is if, if that situation develops. And I'm not going to you know, define those moments, but, but they've happened. They've mm -hmm. happened when I've really been stabbed in the back. And, uh, and it's like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Mm. Um, the best times are when it doesn't happen, which is most times. But it, it always happens to some degree sometime during the, uh, the, the rehearsal or the tech. I would be remiss if I did not bring up probably the single best-known example of when fighting on stage uh, became news, and you were part of that. <laughs> I so, hate Hamlet. Yes. That's uh, interesting. You knew exactly where <laughs> I, I was know. going with I, that setup. I did the movie. <laughs> um, you know, as the story goes, Nicole Williamson strayed from – the choreography, and that greatly upset uh, his co-star, mm -hmm. Evan, Evan Handler. Handler yeah. um, is that something you face often in terms of keeping the actors on track? Uh, no, I don't face it often. Usually it doesn't happen. 
the, um, I, I'll tell you a, a one Nicker Williamson story, and then I won't tell you what happened. Because <laughs> he's, he's, in many ways, uh, Nicker Williamson is Nicker Williamson. I show up for the first rehearsal on I Hate Hamlet. He doesn't show up. He doesn't turn up. So I'm working with Evan. We work on the thing. I go home. I'm sitting at home. The phone rings. And I'll be anxious. Nick, I'm here. You probably noticed I didn't show up for rehearsal. I said, no, I, I didn't. I, I, I did notice. And he's, well, I don't want to do any of that stuff. He said, I really don't want to do any. And I said, well, look, you know, what are you worried about? He said, well, I, you know, I'm getting up at age now. I don't want to do that. And I said, well, if I, if I make it, you do all the defenses that you defend yourself the whole time and you're not aggressive at all, would that be okay? Yeah, at least I could do that. So I said, I'll give you a champagne bottle. And, and, and I choreographed all of the fight as a defense mode, um, mainly because, you know, he, 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 he does riff sometimes. He, he does get into, and I thought, if I had all defenses, at least he will be the one that will be in control of defensing, defending himself. And Evan, I can get in control doing all the action. Hmm. So I thought, you know, that would be a safe way of going at it. And that's what I did. Now, the, the, the altercation that happened between them, many different versions of what happened. Suffice to say, it's a 50-50 thing that happened. Uh, and um, uh, I, I think that neither of them should be really proud of that particular moment. But, yes, I, I do clamp down. If I see animosity in the, uh, um, the actors during rehearsal, uh, I clamp down on it. You know, I, I'll really read the riot act. And usually... One of the reasons that we have fight warm-up was to uh, alleviate the situations like that. So if something happens the night before, in the fight warm-up before the show, the actors can talk about what went wrong. You know, you're hitting too hard, I got a bruise on my leg. And when you do that move, and you have a fight captain. So, you know, I, I built that into the American theater. That, that's part of equity. That's part of my job. Um, two of my guys petitioned forever to get that to happen. So, um, Explain what the, exactly what a fight captain is. All right, okay. Um, in, uh, in dancing, uh, in, in when you're doing a musical, you always have a dance captain. The dance captain is like the fight director's or the, the rather the choreographer's assistant. And what they do is they try, make sure the actors, are, uh, make sure the dancers are doing the correct steps. Uh, if they put an actor in, um, uh, a new actor into the fight or into the dance, the, the fight captain does that. Uh, he also uh, monitors the, the quality of the work for the choreographer when the choreographer isn't there. Uh, and we, we didn't have that in fights. So um, I endeavored to do that. Um, was to, I felt it was important to have somebody, when I wasn't there, being able to control the situation. Because what would happen uh, if you didn't do that is that the director or somebody would cut something from the fight and it would be a disaster because everything nets together very carefully. I mean, I, I'm very aware of what I put into a fight and what I don't put into a fight. If you take a blowout, you may take a beat out. If you take a beat out and the actor's not turned correctly for the next blow, something bad can happen. So having it cut, I needed somebody there who was going to be my voice. So that's the fight captain. The fight warm-up we used to do in England all the time is before you do the play, go on stage, work through the fight. You can forget words, but if you forget a blow in the middle of a fight, you're dead. So having a fight warm-up established in your mind that evening what the fight was. And as I've seen them, they're typically done not at full speed. They're, no, yeah. no. But, but no, every single night the actors come in Correct. or matinee before the performance and run the sequence. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So that's um, that I felt was very important. I have to ask you, you have talked so much about actor motivation, how your work blends in with the work of the director, your work with Shakespeare and Company. We haven't even mentioned that you had helped uh, form the Shared Experience Theater Company. Mm -hmm. In looking at your American work, and maybe we missed something, I only saw one time where you were credited for directing a show. Have you directed shows more than this that we turned up this one Cyrano de Bergerac at, at the Alley, Alley, Alley yeah. in 81. Yeah, I formed a company called Blue Light with Greg Norton mm -hmm. and uh, um, I directed uh, Dogs Hamlet and Cahoots Macbeth. The Stoppard. Uh, which was The Stoppard. Because um, uh, Greg called me up and said he wanted to play Hamlet. And I said, well, you're fresh out of drama school. I, you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot to begin with. Uh, because I'd already directed... 
Oh, this is a long story, Howard. You, you sure want to get a few minutes? All right, okay. Um, <laughs> invariably, the adventure in me always wants to do more than what I'm doing. Um, I, I've always missed in theatre plays of passion. Uh, I've always missed adventure stories. And I felt that the theatre wasn't dealing with this at all. I knew that as a fight director I could do lots of things, but I really wanted to kind of be a voice as a director in a different way. And I kind of looked around the things that I might do. Uh, and one of the things I looked at what I might do was Scaramouche. And uh, so I bought the rights to Scaramouche and I put it together and we did it at Middlebury. Uh, and then I did it again at the Theatre of Virginia, a different version, with Larry Maslon wrote. Uh, and, and then I realized that it wasn't working in terms of uh, a play that was too picaresque, and what it needed to be was more theatrical. Uh, so then cut to um, Blue Light. We, I do Dogs Hamlet and Goats Macbeth, uh, which went very well. I came back and there was – inc- I was doing Victor Victoria. I came back into the theater for the last night. There was Austin Pendleton. There was uh, Paul Newman uh, and, and, and Joanne Woodward. And, and, and all these people sitting in, in – uh, the theatre, watching Dogs, Hamlet, Goats. It was like Williamstown on Broadway. Uh, and, and, or on, on off-Broadway, rather. And the notion that we came up with uh, for that company was to try and create a company of uh, young actors and seasoned actors. And the company would be rather large. It would have be 600 people in total. And it would uh, contain actors who were not doing movies at the time that wanted to come and work with us. And we would put productions together. We did Oedipus. Uh, with uh, Francis McDormand and Billy Craddock. Uh, Marshall Mason, Marsha Mason, um, did a, a, a show. Uh, and so that was the whole idea of that. Now, they came to me and they said, uh, we, we want to do another show, uh, me to direct it. So um, I'm looking around for my classical adventure theater, and a buddy of mine and I have been connected a long time with a, with a thing called Treasure Island, which was Robert Louis Stevenson. And I thought this would be the perfect show because it's a show about boys, and there aren't too many sh- uh, plays for boys. Uh, it's a, a, a family show, kind of like Disney, so it's marketable. Um, it's also a reasonable cast. It, it connects to everybody. We all love pirates. We all like pirates stripped to the waist from wielding cutlasses. We all, we all like Long John Silver, the scallywag. We love that stuff. We love the adventure. And this was a play of passion. Uh, and um, so... I started to put it together, and, and we, we did it. We did it at Blue Light. Uh, Larry Pine played Long John Silver, uh, and uh, um, uh, Lee Wilkoff, Squire Trelawney. And it was a good group of people, really really fun. Joe Grafazzi did Ben Gunn. And, but it was like watching Varnish dry. The first act was really good. The second act was, like, tedious. Then I got an opportunity to go down and do it in Florida, so I did it down there. Uh, and and it, was, it was good. It was, it was good. And I ironed out the second act, and, and good. Then I brought it back, and, and I thought, you know, I want to do this at Circle in the Square. This would be the perfect theatre for it. Not, not doing a trial. I know what it's going to look like. I know what it, So, vainly, I put it all together. We managed to raise uh, a couple of million dollars, and we needed three and a half, and I was told, well, if you go into production, you know, the rest will come, uh, which is the way it sort of normally happens. Uh, and so I had um, Randy Quaid as Long John Silver, Hallie Joel Osmond. And there's, another, there's a question. You could ask me that in a minute, all right? <laughs> <laughs> there's Hallie Joel Osmond uh, was going to play uh, um, Jim Hawkins and Peter Scolari as Ben Gunn. I mean, it was really a nice cast. Overnight, I lost a million and a half dollars. I have to tell you, I sat looking at the wall. This is like 14 years of wanting to put this thing together. Hmm. And it's been so close. Everything was uh, – um, Catherine Zuber did all my costumes. Uh, Tony Strange is my set. I mean, everything was there, everything. And it just all fell through, like just crashed and burnt. Hmm. However, the good news is that next year, or this, the next year, we're going to do it. And uh, we, we've found a place, and we're in the process of signing papers, and it's going to happen, and I'm going to direct again. I need to direct. I've been directing, and that's why I call myself a fight director. I'd often, at the, uh, the public theatre at Central Park, actors would come and say, hey, how do you do this? You know, what should I do? And, and because I know Shakespeare so well, I kind of have. I've been directing for years. It's just that I'm called a fight director and not the director. Um, and I really like to think of myself as a second unit director as opposed to just a fight mm. director. I mean, I, I love shows. I love directors to get kudos for what they do. I have no problems with that whatsoever. 
But I know a lot of stuff now, and I need to be doing that. Well, I think that's a great moment to say I am pleased to know that you will not only fight direct, but direct another day, <laughs> and, be, and people will kill me for that <laughs> bad, bad No, phrasing. no, you're allowed. But um, B.H. Barry, first of all, once again, congratulations for being a 2010 Tony Honor recipient, and thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. Howard, I am overwhelmed. Thank you so much. A wonderful interview. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and also visit uh, today's guest on Facebook. Yeah, B.H. Barry. There yeah, you I'm go. I'm right there. Okay. Smiling on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.